All right, good morning. Uh, and if you are new with us, you've come for a doozy of a message. Um, we, uh, as a disclaimer, I will start with this disclaimer too, um, that the topic of conversation today um, will be around sexuality um, and we'll tackle a few mature issues. Um, so um, it may not be totally age appropriate depending on who you are. Um, I won't get any graphic details or anything like that, uh, but it will be around um, that, that topic. Um, so uh, as parents, you can decide how you want to proceed. Um, and we are going through a series uh, where we are um, tackling and addressing um, questions. Uh, kind of started as uh, an intro, talking about just a lot of the doubt and disillusionment and um, um, all, all the questions that people have around faith and, um, and their struggles with maybe even the last five, ten years in the church, uh, struggles with things like science and faith, things that just so many of the hang-ups that I've watched many of my friends kind of walk through of ways they were brought up, ways they were taught that Christianity is or is not, um, and ways that maybe they're misinformed or maybe that we need to think deeper or more nuanced about. In a day and age where nuance is uh, in, in very slim supply, um, it's really helpful to, um, I think, have some of these conversations as best we can. Uh, this week is probably my longest notes ever, uh, so we'll see how quickly we can get through it uh, together. There was a lawsuit filed by a man um, against the publishers of the NIV translation of the Bible for $70 million. And part of that was because um, the translators used the word homosexual in the text. And uh, the guy claimed that it caused him 20 years of distress, psychological pain, confusion, and was seeking damages for all of that. The lawsuit ultimately got dismissed, but you sort of see um, the, the, the controversy already um, related to words and terms. Um, and so today, one of the things that um, has come up, uh, we, oh, I should probably put up there, uh, we have uh, a form for people to if you have questions, if things come up, if things you want to talk about, things you want us to possibly address, um, you can fill that out. And so this has been a topic that a number of you have asked questions around. Really, we're going to have the conversation around LGBTQIA+, sexuality, same-sex relationships, probably one of the most controversial issues in our day and time. I want to have a few disclaimers on the front end. I'm aware that I'm a straight, white, married, male dude. I understand that. I am not the most ideal candidate to be talking about it, but as a pastor, I do have a biblical responsibility to share God's word on issues, whether or not I personally struggle with them or not. And at some point, what I say today, there's a whole group of you who will probably be offended by something I say on the front end. There's the whole other group of you that will probably be offended by something I say on the back end. But that's kind of the nuance I think that Jesus approaches most things with. And at some point, what all I say today... Um, uh, I want to make a disclaimer around language, too. Even if at times um, I speak about LGBTQIA and all the acronyms that can be included in that, uh, I will not be talking today particularly around the trans community. I know there's some questions around that one, too. That is like a whole other sermon. Um, and I would argue this is already like three sermons in one. Um, one is about attracted, attracted uh, who people are attracted to sexually, intimately, the other one's around ontology and being and what people are created as in terms of biology and gender. 
they're just very, very different conversations. And so we won't be tackling the T today. We may do it in the series. I haven't made up my mind yet. At times, I will use a term like gay as a catch-all term, not to dismiss all the orientations. And I will try my best to avoid the term homosexual, but it does come up in some of the quotes I'll be saying. I know it carries with it some sort of power dynamics, uh, depending on your perspective. It is not used pretty much by large in the gay community. I also will avoid terms like affirming and non-affirming. I think they're categories that are not helpful. Um, they're loaded with power dynamics already, and they draw boundaries before the conversation even happens. Um, and so I might use categories like traditional versus progressive or modern views, um, and that would be about it. And I hope to be as charitable and fair to the position I disagree with, um, that those who disagree with me can at least go, yeah, that's at least our perspective. And so um, in learning that skill in life, will take you a very, very long way. If you are able to present someone else's opinion so that they go, okay, you understand what I'm saying. Um, so, I think there'll be three parts we tackle today. The first is how we got here. Second is what the Bible actually says about these things. And third, and importantly as well, what we do about it. So, how we got sort of in the place where we are, and gosh, there's probably three or four sermons there too, of sort of the dynamics of culture changes over the last uh, hundred years. Uh, and I hate terms like culture war, I just don't like them. Um, it gets applied to just about everything in under the sun. Uh, but I do want to look at the history of some of the ways that things have changed over the last 60 years, particularly around LGBTQIA issues. One of the, one of the speakers on this said, everything is about sex nowadays except sex which is about power. And, uh, and so there's, there's all these dynamics at play in this whole conversation. And there's really, in the sort of last 60 years, two major movements that have arose. Um, the first is those who really view uh, gay relationships as a justice issue, viewing exclusion from anything as unjust, and sort of uh, I'll tackle that from a sociocultural uh, perspective, not necessarily a biblical one. Uh, the U.S., has quite a long tradition of claiming rights and the inclusion of people, but a poor track record of making good on those things. And so uh, in the 40s and 50s, we certainly had the rise of um, racial justice uh, for inclusion and rights and voting and everything else. On the tail end of that, we started the sexual revolution coming out of the late 60s and early 70s, uh, coming off of the racial equality movement. And during the birth of that revolution as well, the gay community realized that America was psychologically ripe for a revolution of the understanding of sexuality as well. The real trigger point, the real sort of um, bullet, uh, really was around the Stonewall riots. That was probably the spark that ignited many things. There were six days of riots in New York around a gay club, uh, a gay bar that existed there. It sort of kick-started in some ways a revolution. It really brought it to the forefront of the news and conversation. Coming out of that uh, really was the formation of the Gay Liberation Front, uh, which you'll notice even the war language that exists there. In 1973, they launched literally what's called the War on Normalcy, um, uh, the War uh, with Normalcy campaign. And so even using the war language to talk about this. And the vision was to bring um, gay sexuality to bear uh, on heterosexuals within the U.S., now, this was also paired with the rise of the AIDS epidemic uh, at the same time, in the gay, which was affecting the gay community disproportionately, uh, particularly in urban centers. And people uh, within the gay community were starting to realize that um, this opportunity of revolution is also experiencing this existential threat. It made it that much more important and on the forefront. This would eventually lead to a what would be a four-point agenda within the gay movement. 
you can read, um, there's a book called After the Ball, where uh, a Harvard-trained social scientist and um, an activist, Marshall Kirk and uh, Hunter Masden, talk about sort of the, the efforts uh, and groundwork to sort of have this careful, calculated uh, public relations propaganda. Their, their words for many of this and not mine. If you, if you read it, it's sort of like reverse engineering of how we got to where we were and much of the culture that we sort of swim in now would believe that this is sort of the logical progression uh, of things. But um, if you sort of read the histories, it's more complicated than that. There's sort of definitely a carefully cal calculated campaign by world-class PR agents. Once again, that's actually their language and not mine. They would say we have a three-pronged strategy of how to change the, the views on this. One was to desensitize uh, American people. Two was to jam any dissent to anyone who opposes, and three, to convert popular opinion to believe that this is a good thing. Continue from the book that said, desensitize the American population to gay relationships. We need a continuous flood of gay-related advertising presented in the least offensive fashion possible. If straights can't shut off the shower, they can at least be used to getting wet. The main thing is to talk about gayness until the issue becomes thoroughly tiresome. Seek desensitization and nothing more. If you can get straights to think homosexuality is just another thing meriting no more than a shrug of the shoulder, then the battle for legal and social rights is virtually won. And so you start seeing the language of sort of the, sort of the, the culture infiltration. The next one they would say is just jam those who oppose the movement violently by any means necessary and to block any dissent to our messaging. The largest contributor in the country to uh, the gay rights movement uh, said, and uh, quote, anyone who opposes us must be punished. We will punish the wicked, which is raising sort of the movement into a term of moral superiority in some ways. Their righteousness is established um, in gay rights themselves, and all those who oppose are wicked. Any dissent in any way, no matter what the category might be, is a full, uh, that's against the sort of full affirmation acceptance, is penalized and excluded from the public square. It makes nuanced discourse and discussion and debates off the table. This front sort of looked at three areas to actually attack uh, in terms of the opposition. The first was the American Psychological Association. Uh, they would identify these three, those, the laws, and the church. The first, the American Psychological so Association, was to protest until homosexuality was removed as a disorder from the, American, from the APA. There was a giant letter-writing campaign. You can read some of the history around it there. I'll, I'll trim my sermon there. Um, but it's super fascinating to kind of watch how that, that worked. The second is to remove all sodomy laws uh, from states. And hear me, I'm not saying whether these things are, are great things or not things. Um, in some ways, I think some of these laws are silly and purposeless. But to remove all sodomy laws and establish legal precedents in every area of society and establish rights for community. And the third one was to attack the church so that homosexuality would be removed from any list of collection of sins. And so continuing from the book, lobbying, education, media, law, art, entertainment, family, business, sports, and therapy all came under the weight of the campaign for war on normalcy. Conversion of the average American emotions, mind, and will through a planned psychological attack through informed propaganda fed to the nation by the media is our strategy. The public should be persuaded that gays are victims of circumstance, that they no more choose their sexual orientation than their height. For all practical purposes, gays should be considered to have been born gay, even though sexual orientation for most humans seems to be a product of complex interactions between innate dispositions and environmental factors during childhood and early adolescence. So, just to paraphrase, they really knew that they needed to make sure that people had the perspective that you are born gay and that's your disposition, even though they know, 
And to this day, the APA would say, it's really more complex than that. To suggest in public that homosexuality might be chosen is to open the can of worms labeled moral choice and sin and give the religious right the stick to beat us with. First, you get a foot in the door by being as similar as possible. Then, and only then, with your one little difference, orientation is, one little difference, orientation, is finally accepted, can you start dragging in your other peculiarities one by one? And so, in some ways, over the last 60 years, there has been, legitimately, from their own voices, a planned, strategic campaign by gay activists working in every sphere of society to change American opinion on same-sex relationships. Even Andrew Sullivan, who himself is a gay man in his article on doing the good work, asks, at what point do we stop and acknowledge we won? How much further do we need to push this? And so you have even the voices going, man, we've, we've gotten the ball going. How much more are we pushing? How much more do we drag in with this? So that was certainly one view over the last 60 years. And the other side, there was a lot, the rise of the religious right in America. The religious right had its own vision, a conservative agenda for American culture based on what they would say is their interpretation of God's word. They would see immorality invading the sort of righteousness of our nation that was founded by someone like Jerry Falwell, was probably a key figurehead amongst others. Some of the main issues that they focused on was, one, the promotion of traditional vision of family life. Uh, the second is opposition to media outlets that, were, uh, had, that are claimed, uh, as they claimed, promote an anti-family agenda. The opposition of some of the equal rights movements, opposition to state recognition and acceptance of homosexual acts, opposition of abortion, even in cases of incest rape, in cases of the woman's life at stake, their support of prayer in schools, and lastly, marketing to Jews and other non-Christians to conversion of conservative, towards conservative Christianity. So you had the rise of this sort of other movement at the same time. And they would say things like, AIDS is not just punishment for homosexuality, it's God's judgment of a society that tolerates homosexuals. The idea that religion and politics don't mix was invented by the devil to keep Christians from running their own country. Someone must be afraid, uh, someone must not be afraid to say that moral perversion is wrong. If we don't act now, homosexuals will own America. If you and I don't speak up now, your home, this homosexual steamroller will crush decent men, women, and children and get in, that could get in its way, and the nation will pay a terrible price. And language was warlike. All over the place, included in this movement. And it, produced such a weird witch hunt in this country that even Tinky Winky was gay. Do y'all remember that? When Teletubbies and Jerry Falwell's like, hey, this purple character must be gay because he has this triangle on his head and it was like this weird witch hunt. And, and um, it was such a peculiar movement that like the, the mark, the mark of success, like the thing they point to as part of the religious right success was the Defense of Marriage Act. Who signed the Defense of Marriage Act? Who's our historians that know who signed the Defense of Marriage Act? Bill Clinton, who is probably likely cheating on his wife while he's signing the Defense of Marriage Act. That is, that is sort of where we were at in our country's history. And it was a success, right? We got this thing signed, and it was such a celebration for so many. And then you read things like 1 Corinthians 5. You come along these texts where Paul's like, what do I have to do with judging other outsiders? Is it not the inside of the church, which is the one I am to judge? What do we do with that? (laughs) 
And the constant research of the church is that it's too politically motivated, irrelevant, extreme, and hemorrhaging people. And the result of this cultural war, I would argue, is just more confusion, more embarrassment, and more exhaustion. Cultural wars produce casualties. And that's what I would argue probably many of us, given the conversations I have with many of y'all, are experiencing right now. Trying to follow Jesus in our time in history live in a battlefield where people are filled with shrapnel and there's casualties to the faith all along the way. And I hear story after story after story of many from various diverse backgrounds and various diverse experiences. They were raised in the church. They loved the church. They loved Jesus. But their experiences that they were unseen, unknown, uncared for. They didn't feel like it was safe to even share any struggles they had on this issue because there was a witch hunt going on around all of this. And it was a struggle. I mean, imagine you're an early teenager, and all your friends around you are suddenly starting to be attracted to the opposite sex, but you are not feeling that same attraction. And if anything, you're starting to realize that your, your hormones, are, however they're working, are also making you attracted to the same sex. But all you hear from the larger religious right at large is how Tinky Winky's gay, and we need to get rid of all gays in America. How do you even talk to anybody about it? And what do you do? And we create it. We just shut down the whole experience. And it's the kindness of God itself that leads us to repentance. And the church throughout the New Testament is the presence of God on earth. And it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Then the church should be the embodiment of the kindness of God. And if we care about repentance in people's lives, we have to do it through kindness. But by just about every research metric, the first thing that comes to mind when people think about the church is, guess what? It's not kindness. Until one of the initial thoughts is, I think we're just struggling to navigate these issues well. So I just wanted to place us in at least the moment we're in to start with before we start talking about some of these texts. That's why so many of us are like, I don't even know. So what happens when we open the Bibles and start interacting with these things? Well, here's the deal. There's like four verses on this to begin with in the whole Bible. It's, it's limited. It's small. I just want to be real about that to begin with. And for some of you, this may be the first time we've really unpacked these texts. You just haven't navigated with them. And we tend to teach whole books at a time. We tend to t- teach through, like we're going to teach through the book of Matthew in a little bit. Um, and guess what? These verses don't come up in Matthew. And so we just haven't tackled it a lot as Resonate Church to begin with. And for the heavy emphasis that American Christianity puts on it, there's, there's four, pretty much four verses that we would have to navigate through altogether. Now, a few weeks ago, we already unpacked a bit of uh, the archetype of marriage, right? When we talked about sort of the ideal versus the real, we talked about Genesis 2, this sort of picture of marriage and this Adam and Eve couple. Let's just um, read that text now, Genesis 2. Feel free to go there if you want to follow along with these texts. They'll also be on the screen. Genesis 2. Uh, We'll just start at verse 20. That'll work. So God has paraded all these livestock and animals in front of Adam because God is saying, I need to find a suitable helpmate for you, a suitable pairing for you. Verse 20. 
And man gave name to all the livestock and the birds and the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helpful fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he stood, uh, slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place of flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. I hate rib. It's just side. And the man said, this is last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast with his wife. And they shall become one flesh, which Jesus would pick up as uh, uh, teaching on marriage. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now, the progressive understanding of sort of the creation of the two genders uh, in some ways is that Adam um, needed, what Adam needed was not necessarily a woman particularly, but he simply needed another human. That's what was not good. That Adam needed simply another human as opposed to an animal. That this was about humanness than gender itself. Humanity is what made someone suitable. Other humans were suitable. Not So they would say it's not about Adam and Eve as complementary things. It's just about the fact that we need another human. It tends to be the progressive reading of chapter 2. But as one scholar would say, Eve's humanness is not the only thing that qualifies her for a suitable helper. Her femaleness seems to actually come play in the role as well. The word translated in the ESV as fit for him, or um, um, uh, uh, I think the NIV says a suitable uh, helper, is the word konegdo. It is sometimes translated, um, it is somewhat difficult to translate, but it's two words sort of merged together, which we're going to deal with again in a second. And it really means someone who is Alike, but opposite. That's just the two words. Like Someone like him and opposite of him, or opposed to him. And so, in this text, if it allows sort of Eve to qualify as the perfect partner. If it was only about humanness, if it was only about creating another Adam per se, then, then the co, and not the negdo part, just the co part, would have been sufficient. It would have been absolutely fine for God to say, I needed to create somebody like Adam. Not fit for Adam, but like Adam. But that's not the words we get. We get the word of someone who is like Adam, but opposed to Adam. Different from Adam. Stands sort of separate from Adam in some ways. Pointing, I would argue, to her femaleness as a counterpart to Adam's maleness. It's a constant theme through Genesis 1 and 2 to begin with, right? Darkness, light. Land, sea, heavens, earth, day, night, humans, animals. And when we get to the creation story of Adam and Eve specifically, we get male and female. All these differences interacting with each other. There's an otherness throughout the whole chapter. So we shouldn't expect God to necessarily create man and man, but he does create purposefully and with intentionality man and woman different and complements to each other. Not something just like us, but a, but a difference with complementarity. Cool. Leviticus. Now we're going to get into the much more controversial texts. Leviticus 18. Sorry, verse 22. Uh, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, 13. It's only two more chapters later. Uh, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So context of where we're at in the storyline. Uh, Israel has left Egypt. They have uh, left sort of all the things that Egypt had going on. They are uh, landing in a land that's going to be filled with Canaanites and other religions. And God gives them, uh, through part of Exodus, through tons of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, 
um, a bunch of laws to say, hey, this is how I want you to live. You're going to live different than the nations around you. You're not going to be like the Egyptians. You're not going to be like the Canaanites. You're going to live a distinct, and what the argument, the, the word is holy. Holy is, sometimes we think of it as like above like certain levels of obedience, but holy just means set apart. It's, there's a set apartness. There's a difference that they are going to operate in than the nations around them. They're going to be a holy people, led by holy people who are the priests wearing holy clothes in a holy land, in a holy place, using holy utensils and holy objects, celebrating holy days, governed by a holy law, so they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, right? The book's about holiness. It's the central piece of it. It's even called the holiness code, in Leviticus 19.2, the, the center point is that, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is, this is a, a teaching that, that this is how you are going to look differently from the nations around you. Now, the progressive arguments is, this is the Old Testament, and it's not necessarily informative for us anymore, particularly the law. It doesn't teach on the ethics and morality. We only look to the New Testament for the ethics and morality. They would argue also that passages referring to men being treated like women in some ways is, a, is in a shame-based honor society. And that's, that's where it's wrong, is that you're not giving another man the dignity that he deserves. And lastly, it is condemning and exploitative idolatrous sex, not loving monogamy that we would speak of today. I think there's good responses to all of this. I don't have time to get into the full understanding of the role of the law in the New Testament. That is like a whole seminary class. Um, but the authors of the New Testament are constantly, including Jesus himself too, he's not an author, but a speaker in the New Testament, quoting and pulling ethical teaching from the Old Testament, including in the book of Leviticus multiple times. They're constantly doing it. They're, they're kind of pulling things out into the New Testament. And as we look at the Holiness Code, even in the chapter surroundings, incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, theft, lying, taking the Lord's name in vain, oppressing your neighbor, cursing the deaf, showing partiality in court, hating your brother, making your daughter a prostitute, and even teachings that are positive, like loving your neighbor and stuff like that, are all included in this section. Now, a lot of them aren't carried into the New Testament, but we would look at that list like, don't make your daughter a prostitute, and go, yeah, that should still apply. Just because Jesus didn't quote it doesn't mean that it's not included as it carries over into the New Testament, particularly around morality and ethics. There are other categories of the law around ceremony, things that happen in, in the temple or the tabernacle space that Jesus is a fulfillment of that we can clearly go to and say, hey, we, we don't need to do those things anymore. And some of the cleanliness laws, of the cleanliness laws around the approachability of into the tabernacle are things that we can go, yeah, we don't need to do those things anymore. But some of the morality, some of the ethics teaching of the Old Testament, we do carry and continue to carry into the new. And it is nuanced to think about which of those things we do, right? Do we need to, can we boil a goat in its mother's milk? Sure. Right? Like, that starts falling into the clean and unclean issues and, and anyways. Like I said, it's a whole other thing to unpack. The second critique that it's not about relationships with feminization of a partner. Uh, some of the problem there is that Genesis itself actually holds up the dignity of women quite a bit as well compared to the culture around it. So um, treating a man like a woman shouldn't be an undignified part of the process. Um, and the language in the passage is not coercive. The language in the passage speaks to mutu mutuality. There's constantly times in the Old Testament laws that if one person takes advantage of another person. Only the person that took advantage is the one culpable to the crime. But Leviticus doesn't speak, or the, this passage of Leviticus doesn't speak that way. Any man that lies with another man, whoever the power dynamic might be, is, is culpable for that, that issue. 
right? That is how Leviticus speaks on it. So it's not a question of power and not power. Romans 1. That's, that's the breath of the Old Testament on homosexuality. I hope you know that. I mean, you can do Sodom and Gomorrah and stuff like that, but I think, it's, I think there's a lot more going on in that story. Romans 1. Set up here is that Paul's presenting an argument. He's pointing out uh, the, the, the nature of the gospel, and he's going to spend chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2 going, hey, you Gentiles have all sorts of issues. You have all sorts of brokenness going on in your culture. And then to the Jews who might be sitting there going, yes, the Gentiles are the worst, he goes, hey, you guys are just as jacked up as they are. I need you to know that. And he kind of groups everybody in this world of sin together in order to go. And that's why the gospel is so great, because it comes to all of you. So that's the argument he's presenting. And in that first chapter, as he speaks towards the Gentile, Roman Gentile world, this is sort of where he comes in. And the argument that he starts creating is um, when we value creation over the creator, we start substituting sort of our, our self for God, our own desires, our own needs, whatever the things we want. And that which is unnatural starts becoming natural. So here's uh, Romans 1 on this, starting in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them, and this is sort of anybody who participates in that substitution, which is really, he starts considering all Gentiles, gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that were contrary to nature, and their men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, the progressive sort of stance, arguments for these things, is that um, there's a few different positions. Uh, one is that this is around heterosexual excess, that the appetites of some of those in that world, which was highly sexualized to begin with, were so out of control that, that, and promiscuous that they were not only um, pursuing heterosexual relationships, but they wanted so many different things, they were just willing to do whatever, and it included um, same-sex relationships as well. Also, uh, sort of the, the second that often gets brought up is that the kind of sex happening, particularly in Romans 1, here is exploitive in nature. Power dynamics, coercive, maybe pederasty. We'll talk about those as we go. It's not the loving, committed relationships that we often um, encounter today. Now, the response is that I would argue that Paul's argument is not necessarily about heterosexual excess. Because Paul is framing this whole thing in Genesis and speaking really about people just not applying and living under God's design for creation. That is his argument that he is making about all things, trying to encapsulate all Gentiles by simply saying, anytime you substitute uh, any design, uh, this, this thing for creation, not about excess, not about uh, the, the, the degree of those things. He alludes to creation uh, in Genesis throughout this chapter, and it's about going against the nature of how God designed the world to work, not about the degree of which to do it. Clear indicators that it's about creation intent and not, and not just um, the degree of violation. The second would be that it's not about coercion. The issue uh, in the first century world, particularly in a Greco-Roman world, there did exist what's called pederasty. Adult men uh, would be paired with uh, a teenage boy. Not a, it would be different than like an adolescent. Um, so there's some nuance to, to how it played out. So I wouldn't look at it in the same way that 
modern pedophilia or something like that would be done. But it was like this progress of teenage boys to become men. They'd be paired with an older man, and that man would often take advantage of that teenage boy. It was definitely a power dynamic of one above the other. So the difficulty is that Paul speaks in this passage not just about men, but he speaks about about women too. And we have zero, zero account of women in the first century with any sort of these power dynamics between adult women and adolescent or teenage women. Paul's critique of the male and female same-sex relationships I would argue, then can't necessarily be just about power if he's including uh, the women in this conversation as well. Even the use of um, en autois, as it gets translated, the the among themselves, or the NIV of one another, I think in uh, verse 20, it's mutual in language, that they have these passions for one another. That it's not just about one, but the other. And Paul, once again, is speaking very generally. He does not specifically speak of homosexual prostitution, men having sex with boys, orgies, or anything along those lines. He does not draw attention to pecking order, class system, or anything like that. He uses very basic terms. Male, female, natural and unnatural. One another to speak mutual same-sex acts. Lewis Compton, gay man, pioneer on historic queer studies, We'll look at this text. He says, according to the interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at uh, bona fide homosexuals and committed relationships, but such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained. That, that reading seems strained and unhistorical. 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. These are very similar in how they speak. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither is sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterer, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Great. So all of us are not inheriting the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, and y'all too, and me too. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, 1 Timothy 1. Just got to keep moving. Now we know that the law is good. If one, uh, Sorry, verse 8. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, and murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice homosexuality, enslavers. So, it's God for the slave trade. No. Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel and the glory of the blessed God from which I have been entrusted. So in both these passages, we have a word that exists called arsenoquities. And there's so much debate about this word. There just is. Because guess what? Paul made it up. The first historic occurrence that we know of of the word is in Paul's letters, which makes things really complicated. Um, we also have the word malakoi, which sort of means soft or effeminate. Uh, not effeminate, soft or delicate. Uh, and so people kind of run with that. I, I think that word's just messier and I don't want to deal with. Um, not because it's avoidance, but just because it doesn't actually move the argument along. But arsenoquities. Progressive uh, position would be it would make total sense to say this language isn't clear, right? Paul's making up a word. We're not sure exactly what it means. Um, so we, we, can't, we can't move forward with that. Um, maybe it's pederasty. Maybe it's exploitation. 
I don't think he's talking about same-sex committed relationships, so therefore that's the position. That would be the progressive position. The response. <clears throat> it's one thing to say the language is unclear, but when you have an understanding of Hebrew and then Hebrew into Greek, um, you start seeing maybe what Paul literally did in the text. So in the first century, you had a translation that was called the Septuagint. It was taking the Old Testament in Hebrew, turning it into Greek, and that was available to any Greco-Roman person. Um, so most of the Greco-Roman world would have known the Old Testament probably in Greek more than they would in Hebrew, and they had their own translation of it. Leviticus 18 and 20 include the words meta arsenos koiten, which means with man bed, which is the, the verses we just read around men lying with men. Leviticus 20, arsenos koiten, man bed. Now Paul, who is well-trained in the law, would know his Old Testament back and forth, interacting with the Greco-Roman world, would have access and affinity towards the Septuagint to begin with. And he takes these two words that exist in both those verses, which is man and bed, and simply combines them. That's all he does. And it fits with the Old Testament, Paul's training, and Paul's argument throughout both of those sections. So to say we just don't know what that word means, I, I don't know. I think the evidence is, is much more in favor of Paul just simply knowing his Leviticus 18 and 20 and saying man bed, right? He's just simply using the terms that already exist in the Old Testament. If it was only about power relationships, why not just say that? There are other Greek words. There's Greek words for pederasty, pederastes. There's Greek words for all sorts of pedophilia or um, Pedeothoros, uh, pedeothoreo, arastes, aremos. There's all these words around men and boy lovers, all these kind of things that exist in the Greek world, but Paul does not use any of those words. And Paul's saying, ultimately, is it's just not appropriate for God's people to function this way. So to recap, Genesis 1 and 2, Leviticus, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, uh, and Jesus even quoting Genesis 1 and 2 in Matthew 19 regarding marriage, with the interpretation I think I've given, would lead me to a definition of marriage as lifelong, whole life union between a man and a woman. That would be my position on this. By understanding the Old Testament, New Testament, even arguing through church history, and I would say the scriptures from the front to the back support that position throughout. It's one thing to talk about women and slavery and some of the progressive nature of the Old to the New Testament, but this issue does not seem to have that sort of trajectory the same way. And I hear the argument as well, what, what if the Bible is just talking about things that we just don't have today, right? We have a cultural setup of long-term, committed, loving, same-sex relationships that they wouldn't have seen, they wouldn't have had a framework for, no picture of, no cultural norms around. We know more about psychology and biology and how things work than they ever did, and I agree with at least that last sentence. But in the ancient world, there was a diversity of all kinds of sexual relationships and behavior, just like today. Master-slave dynamics, prostitution, gender confusion, cross-dressing, pederasty, as we've talked about, committed, stable, loving, long-term relationships, all of them. Every configuration was present, particularly in a Greco-Roman world, not necessarily a Jewish world, which would also lead you to understand that Jesus didn't direct homosexuality directly because he's functioning in a heavily Jewish world that that would not have been really on the radar for most men and women. There was a reality and recognition of enduring same-sex relationship in Paul's time in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, C.A. Williams on Roman homosexuality or K.J. Dover on Greek sexuality, who were like the tomes of historians and themselves um, 
I think both are gay men. Uh, According to uh, scholars, it was everywhere. Enduring loving same-sex relationships were throughout the empire. Plato and his symposium, Plutarch, Agathon, uh, Permenides, uh, Xenophon, uh, Hupothesis, all speak of stable, long-term gay relationships existing in Greco-Roman culture. Even gay marriage ceremonies were practiced, even though Rome didn't recognize them legally in the ancient world. N.T. Wright would go on to say, as a classicist, I have to say that when I read Plato's symposium, when I read the accounts of the early Roman Empire, of the practice of homosexuality, then it seems to me that they knew just as much about it as we do. In particular, a point which is often missed, they knew a great deal about what people today would regard as longer-term, reasonably stable relationships between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato. The idea that in Paul's day, it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men by older men or whatever, of course there were plenty of that going on, as there is today, but it was by no means the only thing. They knew about the whole range of options there. And so I would argue it's a forced historical interpretation to say that today's same-sex relationships are different than necessarily the time of the Bible. We just don't see that in the histories. So what do we do about all this? (laughs) Right? And it's one thing to go, that's that's a biblical view on it. But what do we do? How does the church function? How do we act? And I want to have a very pastoral word on this. As you approach any issue, I think we have to be mindful of what we bring to the Bible on very complex issues. Recognizing we read things differently depending on where we are at life, I think it's one of the best contributions to the postmodern understanding of the world that we bring. It's, it's wonderful. So when I approach anything like an issue like this, I have to ask, who am I? And there's important categories. I'm beloved by God in my brokenness. Is there brokenness? Yes, a lot of it, a ton of it. I'm a guest at Jesus' table. I don't invite myself. Jesus invites me. I'm a gift recipient, not the host. Now, as I read like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, and one of the things that Jesus will go on to say is, look, you got to be able to see the plank in your own eye before you judge the speck of dust in someone else's eye. The application of a text like that is for me to understand that my sexual sin is way worse than anybody else's that I know. That my starting point is to understand that my sexual brokenness is worse than anybody else around me. Then I can start having a conversation. That's who I am. What about the community I'm a part of? So I start with who I am. What about the community that I'm a part of that contributes to this whole issue? I'm part of a community that is called to offer hospitality to everyone. As we put off old creation dynamics, put on new creation dynamics, we function out of hospitality for everyone. I'm a part of a community that has done real and legitimate harm to the LGBTQIA people. They are often wounded deeply by the church and set up for failure. You have a teenage boy or girl that comes out as gay, and guess what happens in so many cases? They get kicked out of their church, and they often get kicked out of their family. How are they set up to now navigate what is true in the world when the two things that should provide the most support are providing them? I'm part of a community that regularly fails to include single, divorced, and gay people. It's a struggle in the church nationwide. The family is always the emphasis, as if this is like achievement unlocked of life. And I don't know how long that's been going on. It's a serious problem. Marriage has become an idol. Not to say marriage is a bad thing, but as with all good things, it can become the idol. And the church has put all ideas of intimacy and things like that under the marriage category. And we don't even know how to be friends anymore. 
We just don't. Seneca would say nothing delights the mind than having a loyal and loving friendship. Or Cicero, that friends are a second self. Or Francis Bacon, without friends, the world is a wilderness. And let me, let me say this very, very clearly. You can live without sex, but you cannot live without love and intimacy. And we have not figured out how to separate the two very well. We struggle with friendships. We struggle with close, intimate relationships. And there's too much teaching connecting those things together. And the friendship muscle has caused, uh, is atrophied and has caused so many of us to be completely lonely. And we struggle with deep, authentic friendships. You can be a flourishing human. Like at some point, marriage is like a vocation or a call. It's not a trajectory of human flourishing. You can be a human that flourishes completely married and completely non-married, stepping into whatever God has for you, right? Like the two most like focused on individuals in the New Testament are both single. Hope you know that, right? Jesus and Paul, single people. There's a flourishing picture that we should see. And if you are single and we have ever isolated you or made you feel like you are less than, we repent as a church. You have just as much a place at the table of what it means to be a mature, faithful believer as anybody who is married. It is not some goal to be achieved. I'm part of a community that focuses on sexual sin disproportionately to the sins of Scripture. Gosh, there's 2,000 verses on greed. We'd rather talk about the four verses on homosexuality. Right? And we live according to sin as long as it's... We, we like accommodating things as long as it's just our own sin, not anybody else's. I'm part of a community that's become, uh, that because of the corruption of the American church, has basically lost all authority to speak on these issues to begin with. Right? Like, our own house is filthy. There's sexual scandals all over the place, cover-up of abuse all over the place. We fail to live by our own sexual ethic, but yet want everybody else to as well. Therefore, I believe that we should have deep and faithful acts of repentance towards the LGBTQIA community. I also want to eliminate double standards, and they are legion. Porn, premarital sex, infidelity, abuse. There's so many things that seem to be allowable in some way or measure within the church. But as soon as two people come walking in holding hands, suddenly all hell breaks loose. Like, it's like, we got to do something about that. And that's the game of the Pharisees. To rate sins and to put certain sins in different categories than others, That's why our posture has to be the starting point of going, my sin is worse than everybody else's. And not to rank sins, because guess what? We rank in our own favor all the time. I believe that affirming and non-affirming are not helpful categories and don't capture what is Christ-like on this subject. I think Jesus' practice on this topic would be what we find at Table Fellowship, where he's inviting those who are sexually broken and those who are self-righteous to all kind of sit down at the same table. A posturing of understanding that Jesus shared meals and didn't make a bunch of statements about everything. So to be a church where we can hold traditional views and non-traditional views, that we would break bread together and learn and love and serve each other. And it's great to say, this is the ideal, but even I don't live up to the ideal of marriage and sexuality, so what do we do with all of it? And the only thing I'm convinced of is that we offer hospitality. We bring people into the orbit of community and the word and spirit, and we see what happens. And to do that, we simply cannot prejudge who belongs at the table and who does not, because we are all invitees to that table. 
So wherever you find yourself, you're welcome here. As you should note, we don't avoid hard passages. But I want it to be less about our particular view and more about what we do to create a hospitable community in that process. And not just about sexuality, like all things, politics, all things. Some of you think Trump is antichrist. Other of you think Biden's name is really Brandon. Some of you think mass are satanic. Some of you think mass is how you love your neighbor. There's all sorts of different issues where we run the gamut. It's the kind of mess you see in the early church, right? Whenever people are like, we got to be like a, 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 the early church, we got to be like an Acts church. What? The Acts church that like was forgetting about all the, the, the Gentile women who weren't getting food, who um, were, were fighting about all sorts. There was all sorts of a mess in the Acts church. And then you read Paul's letters, and the churches were messy there too, all struggling to get along, figure out who should be at the table and who shouldn't. Peter's off doing his own thing, and Paul's like, you can't do that. It's messy. So does that mean gay Christians need to live a celibate life all their life? Can their desires change? Can they be a partner here at this church? Can they serve in certain areas? What are the lines and boundaries? I don't know, guys. I just don't know. But so much of the LGBTQIA conversations are pastoral and individuals, and very much it's about people. And so if you want clarity from me today, I'm not going to give it to you on that front. And you could say that that's just a cop-out, but I would say that's way harder than having a clear line. Because I can have a clear line and not love anybody. It's very easy. But the work of ministry is to sit down and have hospitality around Jesus' table together. Um, and let me say one final word of honesty towards everyone. Not only anecdotally do I know within the life of this church, but statistically... We have people here who identify on the LGBTQIA spectrum. We have people who are same-sex attracted in various levels of passion and desire. We have people within heterosexual marriages themselves who don't know how to speak about these desires or how to navigate those desires. We have just about everything you can imagine in this church. And my hope, my, my deep desire is that you're welcomed with the hospitality of Jesus here. Your desire, just like all desires, to become more like Jesus and his disciples, to trust him to be Lord of all your life, including your sexuality, however that may play out. We would never be surprised in a life group for someone to go, yeah, I, sh I struggle with this. That would be an incredible place of healing or transparency or growing a Christ-likeness and community together. That it's not like, oh no, someone shared that, we need to have a meeting after this. That shouldn't be. We don't do that about any other sins. Why would we do that about this? So, as I said, the beauty of a community like this is that we can go, hey, this is where the Bible teaches on this. But this is a messy process. And we are all in sort of this how to follow Jesus together kind of boat. And we're all at different levels. We're all at different levels of sanctification. And guess what? I don't get to order anybody's sanctification. I can barely order my own sanctification. But if we keep Jesus at the center, I am good. And we might have a sermon on that in a few weeks. And so we come to this table every time. We're people on the right and the left. We're Greeks and Jews and barbarians and Scythians and Democrats and Republicans and gays and straights and whatever else. All can come to this table and go, yes. I believe that Jesus is the king of this universe. And I believe there's brokenness in my life, and I do want him 
be my savior. That what he accomplished on that cross was to reconcile me back to the creator of this universe. And he is doing a work by the spirit in me to make me more like him. And I don't know what that looks like. And that's a beautiful celebration at the table. So we're going to do that now as we give thanks to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ before he suffered, gave us this memorial of his sacrifice until he comes again.